Hello, everybody, and welcome to We Measure the World, a podcast produced by scientists for scientists. That's not something I alone have been thinking about, but just thinking, yeah, there's, you know, we think about models that having these inputs, outputs, and then these parameters. But what if the parameters themselves are dynamic? Do, does that mean right. we have to measure yeah. everything everywhere all at once to get <laughs> mm-hmm. them to work? And in which case, if we already measured everything everywhere all at once, then we wouldn't need these models now, mm-hmm. would we? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, thinking about how to incorporate the biology and the expected relationship to have that next layer of like, how do the parameters evolve? That's something that, mm-hmm. that I've been thinking about. That's a small taste of what we have in store for you today. We Measure the World explores interesting environmental research trends, how scientists are solving research issues, and what tools are helping them better understand measurements across the entire soil-plant-atmosphere continuum. Today's guests are Drs. Kim Novick and Jessica Guo. Dr. Kim Novick is a professor, Paul H. O'Neill Chair, Fisher Faculty Fellow, and Director of the PhD Program in Environmental Sciences at Indiana University. She earned her bachelor's and PhD in environmental science at Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment. Her research areas and specific interests are in land-atmosphere interactions, terrestrial carbon cycling, plant ecophysiology, and nature-based climate solutions. And Dr. Jessica Guo is a plant ecophysiologist and data scientist who studies plant-environment interactions under extreme climate conditions. She earned her bachelor's in environmental biology from Columbia University and her PhD in biological sciences from Northern Arizona University. She is currently at the University of Arizona where she blends her passion for data science with her expertise in plant water relations. And today, Kim and Jessica are both here to talk about their many research projects. So thank you so much for being with us today. We're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. All right. So, Definitely today we wanted to talk about and get into your projects and research interests. Uh, But first, can you just tell us a little bit about your backgrounds? We'd like to know how you got into the sciences in general and how you worked your way into uh, the fields and specialties of environmental and climate studies. So I don't know, Kim, if you if you want to go first with that. Sure, I'll be happy to. Um, You know, my path uh, started as an undergrad. I um, elected to major in uh, civil and environmental engineering, uh, born out of just sort of a a general affinity for math and physics and uh, of the engineering majors that were available at the university I attended. Uh, Civil and environmental engineering seemed like it offered the most potential to sort of do good in the world. Um, And uh, it was, I think, my junior year, I uh, participated in a field trip out to a set of Ameriflux towers uh, in the Duke Forest run at at the time um, and for the duration of their existence by Professor Gabby Katul. Um, and we got to climb the towers, which mm-hmm. was really fun and exciting. And I thought, well, that might be an interesting way to spend a summer. So I emailed Gabby to see if he was accepting undergraduate research assistance. And he sent me a very short reply, send me your transcript. <laughs> and I did, <laughs> I guess it passed muster uh, because that turned into a really excellent uh, summer research experience that turned into a senior's honors thesis um, that after a few years out uh, working in the NGO sector, eventually uh, turned into my PhD. Um, and so, you know, most of what I've been doing since is working to apply what I learned about measuring land atmosphere uh, fluxes of carbon, water, and energy uh, to understand ecophysiological processes at a range of scales, but also to uh, apply that knowledge uh, to solve uh, uh, practical problems, as I like to think of it. 
um, uh, for example, concerning questions surrounding nature-based climate solutions and drought monitoring um, and those sort of applications. Great. And Jessica, how about you? Yeah, so um, I'm from Arizona, from uh, Phoenix, and I couldn't wait to get out of the state. Uh, Note I am back here now, but at the time I was like, New York City, that's about as different from Phoenix as I could, my my mind at the time could imagine. Um, And I got in with the uh, E3B department, Ecology, Evolution, and Environmental Biology. And uh, yeah, I took took all the courses they had, did a summer research internship in forest ecology in um, Wisconsin-Madison. There's a lot of pretty classic community ecology-driven uh, questions, um, but my one of my mentors, Shahid Naeem, um, was interested in biodiversity and ecosystem functioning, and that really got me thinking about the functioning and kind of functional trait uh, side, which is still, you know, still a very uh, popular field now. Um, and when I went to Northern Arizona University, I, you know, wanted wanted to dig deeper into mechanism. And so that leads me to plant ecophysiology. My master's project was on a uh, trying to do plant ecophysiology at the community scale. It involved a lot of field work, a lot of lab work and um, yielded data that were not easily analyzable. So that's when I kind of took um, another turn towards more quantitative approaches Data science wasn't actually a very popular term, at least not in my not in my world back then. So I didn't call it data science, but I went on in search of a more quantitative, more quantitative tools because ecology data just is messy. It is is not going to fit neatly and uh, to the criteria that are required for some of these tests. Um, so I yeah sought my advisor Kiona Ogle, and uh, the rest is history, as they say, because I took to Bayesian modeling. Um, I found it very useful. And so I can still work on the questions that I'm very driven by, you know, how do plants cope with changing climate? Uh, at which time scales are they responding? Um, and then I have this tool that has has served me. And and yeah, uh, and so, I'm, so it turns out I'm, I, I'm back in Arizona. I do love Arizona. It's a great state in many, way, uh, many ways, um, but it turned, it took leaving to, to figure that out for me. <laughs> That's often the case, isn't it, right? <laughs> So we've had podcast episodes where we've had multiple guests on at the same time, but this is the first episode where we've had collaborators together to discuss their projects. And so could you tell us a little bit about how you first came to become collaborators and begin to work together on research projects? I would love to tell that story. Um, I met Jess at the AGU conference, and I think we disagree on the year. In my mind, it was 2019, but it might have been 2018. Um, I walked by her poster and uh, I saw something on her poster I had never seen before, which was a continuous record of plant water content Mm. data. So she had been measuring, uh, it was really stem water potential using psychrometry um, out at her field research sites out west. And I, I didn't know at the time that this was possible. And I was just amazed by these beautiful figures I saw on Jess's poster. Um, because uh, what it showed for me uh, is that it would be possible to measure uh, the water potential of plants at timescales over which things like temperature and humidity vary, Mm -hmm. which could really allow us, um, you know, the opportunity uh, to answer questions about how plant stomates respond to drought stress that that really have not historically been possible to answer using um, more discrete data sets. So uh, Mm -hmm. that's certainly how we met. Um, and from there, uh, it, we, we've just been thinking over the years about ways to enable um, 
those observations to be collected in more sites um, and also uh, to, to create uh, uh, water potential databases that are that are more accessible and open uh, for, the, for the broader community. But we can definitely trace it back to that poster where we also bonded over the fact that we had both received a um, AGU Biogeosciences uh, travel grant um, mm. for parents of young children at the time. So I think oh, that wow. my, my daughter is about a year older or maybe about the same age as Jess's. So that was obvious from her poster. So we had a chat about that as well. Is that how you remember it, Jessica? <laughs> I do. I remember it because I think that year was, um, I mean, that was my year. I had I had a baby. I had a poster. I was ready to go. To, um, I, that, it was really my first real AGU. And I, mm. I remember I, they were giving out these um, pins that said job seeker. Mm. And mm-hmm. I, it was kind of like, oh, Kim Novick. I mean, I've read her work. This is amazing. She's at my poster. She thinks my poster, my figures are cool. Um, and I kind of was like, hey, like I have this job seeker. And she's like, well, I they need to make one for me that's called grant seeker. <laughs> I remember her saying that. And so I think that um, also it was like, OK, grants. So that's what we need then to to make this work. How can we work together? Of course, you know, things take time. I stuck it out long enough in academia to, to for, for some of those things to come to fruition. Um, but I also want to give a shout out to George Koch. Um, who really, you know, it was it was his instruments. He had gotten a grant and was kind enough to lend them to me for the duration of my dissertation research and um, taught me, showed me the ropes, taught me how to use these instruments. And later on, I figured out that um, not, not, not everyone, most people don't have a George Coke in their lives. Um, and so this technology is not really accessible. Even, I mean, even if you did get a grant and purchase these instruments, um, just the know-how and how to install them and keep them functional and like, and then how to deal with, you go from, you know, spot measurements of plant water potential to time series at the half hourly scale. Like mm-hmm. then you have to deal with the data mm-hmm. side of side of things. Um, yeah. And um, so it takes a lot to get there. And I think that's one of the things that motivated us is like, okay, so how can we scale this up? You know, not just me and Kim and maybe a handful of other people who are really, really invested, but how can this, um, you know, there's so many, there's so many questions, there's so many species, mm-hmm. um, so many, and, and a great sense of urgency, I think, to our mm-hmm. work as well. So how do we put that, um, make that available to others? Right. I know that those that know us here at Meter Group know that we are water potential super fans and feel that it is a measurement that should be included in any kind of research dealing with questions surrounding soil moisture or exploring the behavior movement of water all throughout the soil plant atmosphere continuum. Can you give us a little background for those in our audience who might not be super familiar with water potential? Could you give a little background into into what it is and how you use it in applications in your uh, specific research interests? Sure, I'll be happy to, to uh, take a try at answering that question and then maybe Jess um, can follow up. I'll start by focusing on the soils. Um, uh, where it's, you know, soil water potential uh, is uh, long been a core hydrologic variable. Uh, you know, if you take a college level hydrology course, you're going to be introduced to the concept. It's usually negative in soil, so you can think of it as a, a measure of the tension under which uh, water is bound to the soil. Um, and it is gradients in water potential that move water from one soil layer to another or from one place in the soil to another. But also gradients in water potential between soils and plants mm-hmm. that move water through plants and then eventually to the atmosphere. Um, you know, it's a variable that shows up in Darcy's law and that shows up in Richard's equation. Um, but at least in, in my world, um, it's not a variable that we 
routinely measure in the field. I mm -hmm. think that we certainly should do that more often. And, and I applaud Nita for providing us with some instruments to make that possible. Um, but historically, in, in ecological research or ecosystem science research, we measure soil moisture content, mm -hmm. which is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. It's the volume of water in the soil, not so much the pressure under which it is bound. Um, and there are some, some things you can do, some tricks you can try to convert between soil moisture um, and soil water potential. Uh, but depending on which tools you're using, these can end up being very uncertain conversions. Um, but the truth is, for many of the questions that we seek to ask, such as, um, you know, what determines uh, stomatal responses to declining soil water, or uh, what determines the water potentials within the plant that can ultimately drive drought-driven plant mortality, mm -hmm. we really need to know water potential. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are very enthusiastic about, on the one hand, motivating the community to either make more instrument uh, measurements of soil water potential in situ, um, or to do some of those lab-derived water retention curves um, that can allow us to make the site-specific comparisons um, uh, but also just to, to recognize that, um, you know, when we want to understand how plants are responding to the environment, uh, it is water potential that is ultimately the more relevant driver most of the time um, than soil moisture content. Yeah. And then I, yeah, maybe I'll punt it to, to Jess, who might be able to tell us a few things about, about the water potential in plants. Well, that's just a, as, as, um, as was alluded to, it's just a key measurement that should be measured with a lot of other, when you're measuring a lot of other things about how a plant is functioning, uh, say photosynthesis or uh, other fluxes, it's nice to get a sense of what's the water status of the plant. And mm -hmm. so I think that in that regard, measuring plant water potential is um, is key to understanding, right? And so uh, in plant ecophysiology, we don't have the same kind of functional trait where you can take one measurement and that represents um, a certain characteristic of a plant. We often look at how it changes along a gradient. So um, kind of like, you know, ACI curves where you change the level of CO2 in, inside your chamber and measure the photosynthesis, how photosynthesis reacts to that. Um, in plant water relations, we often look at as the leaf or the branch dries down and the water potential becomes even more negative, mm -hmm. um, how does that affect the hydraulic uh, properties of the tissue, of the uh, conductive tissue? in that stem or in that leaf. And so that can give us a parameter such as, um, so vulnerability curves can give us something like P50 or the water potential at which 50% of the maximum conductivity is lost. And as if you're doing this on leaves, you can get at things like trigger loss point, at mm -hmm. what point do the kind of leaves lose their trigger and collapse and that generally is considered uh, not, not reversible from there. So those are important factors that we, you know, and, and a lot of traditional ecology work, we want to know, like, which mm -hmm. species are more vulnerable, which species are less vulnerable. Under climate change, what can we expect from species A versus species B? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, the, the water potential is quite critical to all of those. And so those are more kind of snapshot, maybe uh, parameters, but with the with some technologies that are monitoring both soil water uh, potential continuously and are also possible to measure plant water potential continuously can get at some of those other um, time scales of questions like what happens when, you know, a rain of event happens or what happens during a heat wave. Right. Um, it wasn't previously possible with the manual measurements. Right, right. Can you speak to, uh, I guess, go into a little bit more detail on some of the successes that you've had in making water potential measurements in soil or plants? 
I'd love to hear Jess tell us a little bit more about her work on the, the creosotes and the other charismatic species we find in the in the Southwest, because I she she's um, again I think really pushing the envelope in terms of what's possible for for measurements and plants out there. Oh sure, thanks Kim. Um, yeah, so the creosote bush, Laria tridentata, is this very drought tolerant shrub, and it's it's just known in the literature for going down to pretty negative pretty extreme water potentials. Um, and uh, so because of, and, and, you know, desert shrub, not very fast growing. Um, it's, it's unusual in many ways. And it's surprisingly really um, has really taken to being sent, monitored for the stem water potential. And so the way these, these um, products work is that you expose the surface of the xylem and you attach a sensor to it and you seal it really well. Um, but that can be affected by things like the wounding response of the plant or the plant tissue growing into the sensor. So you do have to rotate them. And so I, you know, I look back on it. Um, I think all of us can have, you know, down moments where we're like, oh man, that was just bad luck. I missed out on this opportunity or that opportunity. Um, but I really have to say that I had just the incredible luck of being able to learn about these sensors from George Cope and working in a system when I was at ASU, um, temporarily at ASU, uh, to work with a tree, uh, a shrub of plant species that just really worked very well with the sensors. Um, and so, yeah, the time series produced there because of the variability in the Sonoran Desert, you know, really dry periods followed by really wet dynamic periods. Um, experiencing all those different environmental conditions, you can also see that variability so clearly in the water potential time series. Uh, and it's led me to think differently about, you know, kind of classifying entire species as, um, you know, very drought tolerant or very um, drought avoidant because, um, you know, plants are living organisms and they, if, especially I think if they're in environments where uh, the conditions are known to, um, they've evolved for these conditions that are, you know, go from extremes, mm -hmm. uh, they ha can have different strategies for those different times. You're talking about extreme areas, and I think a lot of our audience might be familiar with permanent wilting point. What are the, the plants that you're studying out in the extreme, you know, Sonoran deserts and, and other places? What is their tolerance level? I'm sure the creosote has a permanent wilting point because if you push the envelope far enough, you know, plants are not going to be able to handle that. But I've recorded water potentials of pre-dawn water potentials in creosote of down to negative nine. Megapascals. Okay, megapascals. Um, All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Negative nine megapascals. <laughs> uh -huh. What is that? Ninety bar. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, and I think it, this particular plant it is on the extreme, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it has properties that let it. Uh, so even after the leaves lose trigger, they're able to after rainfall recover and keep growing, mm -hmm. which is not typical, I think, of plants. And so, yeah. Uh, there is a species in Australia that I've read of having more negative water potentials than creosote, really? but I think that's about that's about it. That's wild. So I, yeah, I, I don't know what the permanent wilting point is. <laughs> haven't, haven't got there yet. <laughs> haven't gotten there yet. That's super interesting. What are some of the other difficulties you have encountered in measuring water potential? Well, um, so when you're working with something as ne with water potentials as negative as creosote, running out of gas is like the number one fear that I have um, uh, uh, for my dissertation study. And then now for, for some current work, my plan is to just whole hog deliver a whole giant tank of hmm. pressure 
pressurized air to the site to wow. avoid that problem yeah. um, with the small portable tanks just never know when you're going to run out mm -hmm. um and then it takes it also takes a lot longer so uh, some people, you know, are like, oh, yeah, you can, you know, go out and measure like 30 plants. I'm like, well, the amount of time that you ha it takes to get down to like a negative six or a negative nine, um, it just, you, you can, you can do fewer samples mm -hmm. and then you have to let the air out slowly sometimes as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one thing that, uh, but in my favor are that the creases are short, so I don't have to do any kind of pole pruning. Mm -hmm. I just mm -hmm. heard from a, I have done the, like aluminum pole pruning before and some aspens. That was really tough and physical. Mm -hmm. um, I just heard from someone at NAU the other week about um, carbon fiber window washing poles. I don't know if Kim, if this is something that you guys could explore. <laughs> Apparently they're pricey, but it might be worth it because he's like, yeah, you can just lift it with one hand. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. there you go. We'll, we'll have to look into it. I have to say, you know, I, I, I'm joking, but I, I only only 50 percent joking when I say 50 percent of sort of the work that Jess and I are doing right now is just to allow my lab group to avoid future pre-dawn measurements. Because uh, <laughs> while I have many, many, you know, very dedicated postdocs and students that I'm lucky enough to work with, personally, I hate them and I hate having to ask people to do them. It's mm -hmm. it's hard. And uh, we work in, in tall forests, so our trees are 30 plus meters tall. And it's hard enough to access the leaves when the sun is shining. And it's really hard to get to them. Uh, in, in the pitch black darkness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the benefit of those pre-dawn measurements is that it gives you a proxy uh, for what the uh, soil water potential is over the, you know, integrated right. root, root zone. Um, so we're always sort of scratching our heads to think of there are, might be other ways that we can get at that um, that don't involve driving an 80-foot 80, 80 boom lift around in the dark um, <laughs> at, at, at 4.30 in the morning. Um, so, uh, but it is hard when you work in big forests. It, uh, accessing um, at the, the top of the canopy is is a real challenge for us. We tried everything. We do. We have the slingshots. Um, we we get the boom lift out. It's really a cherry picker truck, and we go up that way. But then we're sort of limited to trees that grow by the little road. Um, some some groups are able to access leaves from their eddy covariance towers, but ours mm -hmm. isn't quite close enough to any of the trees, so that doesn't work for us. Mm -hmm. um, we are prohibited from firing a shotgun <laughs> in our research area, so that's off the table. But it is it is one of the biggest headaches of our work is is just getting to the leaves of these of these tall trees. Oh, man. How about measuring water potential in soils? What are some of the difficulties there? Interesting question because I think we're still not at the point where we have, you know perfect sensors mm -hmm. for the task, but we have sensors that are better than they were historically. Mm -hmm. And so when I try to think about why is it the case that most of the time in field research settings, particularly in the ecological and ecosystem science community, we measure soil moisture instead of soil water potential, I think it's because simply the measurements have historically been easier for soil moisture content. Um, you know, we're just starting to get to the point where we're installing uh, in-situ soil water potential sensors. Um, Taros 21, mm -hmm. I think if I got it right. Yep. Um, and, and we've been quite <laughs> pleased with those so far. Um, uh, you know, uh, but we work in, in fairly music environments. Um, we would never see plant water potentials of negative nine in PA, you know, <laughs> in, in our worst droughts, you know, maybe uh -huh. the soil gets down to negative two or three MPA. So mm -hmm. um, we're working within a much more limited range. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're, uh, if I can just take a second to, to mention some sort of broader efforts to um, increase the collection of, of these sorts of measurements um, through the Ameriflux Network's Year mm -hmm. of Water, 
um, there's sort of two things going on. On the one hand, uh, Amerifux, which is a network of Etikovariance Fox Towers for, for North and South America, um, it has, has purchased and, and sent out to individual sites uh, a, a wide array of in-situ uh, soil water potential sensors. So mm -hmm. I think we just started to see them installed this summer, and it'll be really exciting to get those data back um, and, and, and see how they can help us interpret the fluxes. Um, another major initiative is being led by um, my lab together with uh, uh, Rich Phillips, who's at IU down in the biology department, and Ameriflux, where we are doing uh, generating site-level water retention curves mm -hmm. um, using equipment uh, provided by Meter, um, which is uh, just a few doors down from where I'm sitting right now. Um, and the idea is that we are asking Ameriflux PIs um, to send us their soils. We send out a sampling kit, and mm -hmm. they are to collect somewhere in the ballpark of 12 soil cores um, from three different depths, maybe four different profiles, send it back to us. And we're analyzing um, those samples for saturated hydraulic conductivity and the water retention curve, soil texture, mm -hmm. and fine rate density, um, which is data that will again return to the network. And so the hope is that, um, you know, we're beginning to generate the information necessary to transform those historic observations of soil moisture content into estimates of soil water potential, um, which I, I'm really excited to see how this plays out because it's so common in our field to relate some sort of ecosystem process. Maybe it's GPP, which is canopy scale photosynthesis mm -hmm. or evapotranspiration or, or stomatal or surface conductance, the soil moisture content. And so frequently we see that those relationships appear to be threshold driven, right? Mm -hmm. There's some range of soil moisture where we don't see much of a change mm -hmm. in photosynthesis or conductance. And then we reach what appears to be a critical threshold. And then and then things start to decline rapidly. Mm -hmm. And the hypothesis that we're looking forward to testing is that a lot of the nature of that apparent threshold relationship is really driven by by the soil and, right. and the water retention characteristics of the soil. Right. So that if we switched out the x-axis from soil moisture content to soil water potential, we might see much uh, far more linear relationships and reduce a lot of the heterogeneity from one site to the next. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned, <laughs> but we will be making an announcement soon um, uh, to collect more soils as part of that project. And I, and I want to particularly acknowledge Daniel Beverly, who's a postdoc that's been really driving that project forward together with Alexander Cruikshanks, who's a postdoc mm -hmm. uh, research assistant who um, I'm pretty sure at some point in the near future will be uh, pursuing uh, uh, graduate school applications. Awesome. Keep your eye out for her. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Kim, you talked about seeing Jessica's poster for the first time. And one of the things that really piqued your interest was her continuous data. What was that of interest to you at that time? We've been, historically, my group and, and, and many others have been interested in understanding how plants respond um, to drought stress, of course, but specifically how they respond to both drying soil and also uh, drying air, mm -hmm. right? So drying soil, we can measure as a function of soil moisture content or more ideally soil water potential. <laughs> um, in the air, it, uh, you know, the best proxy is the vapor pressure deficit. So the difference between the amount of air the atmosphere can actually hold and then, and then the actual water vapor content. Um, and so, you know, as a, as a drought unfolds, usually soil water declines. Uh, but often the vapor pressure deficit also goes up. Um, and these things tend to happen together. Mm -hmm. um, so through land atmosphere feedbacks, the soil moisture drives, VPD goes up. But plants can respond independently to each stress. Mm. Um, so if you can grow a plant in an environment where VPD rises, the soil moisture stays the same, 
you will still see declines in stomatal conductance and photosynthesis driven by plants actively closing their stomates to avoid excessive water loss to this drier first year atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, but because these things tend to go together, using you know data collected at weekly or monthly timescales, it's very hard to disentangle the two. Right. However, it is very straightforward. Let's say reasonably straightforward. <laughs> right. uh <-huh. laughs> um, to do it when you have continuous data, because over the course of a day, or even a couple of days, usually soil water tends to be relatively stationary, whereas VPD can vary quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so you can leverage this these different timescales of variation together with continuous measurements of whatever response variable you're interested in looking at and be able to disentangle the vapor pressure deficit from soil moisture impacts on mm -hmm. plant function. And um, we've been able to do this quite well. There's no, no shortage of studies that are doing this looking, using data from eddy covariance flux towers, which come in at a half hourly or hourly timescale, and also from sap flux measurements of, of tree water use, which are also made continuously. Um, but the potential to be able to, to do the same thing um, and, and perform complementary analyses on continuous measurements of plant water potential um, would really allow us to connect the dots in a way that we haven't been able to do so before. Anything to add to that, Jessica? I think I just want to reflect that like the it's it was amazing that Kim saw that and like was immediately like honed in. On, oh, wow, that is a game changer because I had tried to pitch this same idea like, oh, we're going to go from these manual measurements, spot measurements to continuous measurements to various other, you know, as a grad student, small grants to support. And they generally just came back as reviewed as like not very, you know, there's sensors for everything, mm -hmm. you know, like what's mm -hmm. so exciting about you using a sensor that doesn't sound all that novel. Mm -hmm. um, but it really is novel in this sphere because of what what's never it's never been able to measure before. And because of all the difficulties you were you just spent some time describing to get pre-dons. Um, and I think pairing that with other sensors, like at the same time scale, I think that's really where uh, a lot of my interest also lies, like sap flow. And um, I haven't used these myself, but other people use the dendro stem dendrometers. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe there could be some people measure wood water content. Um, and so pairing these together, looking to just like it's still a wide open question, I think, like what are some of the good proxies? Maybe there's some good relationships between these. I personally think that being able to instrument a plant with the water potential, maybe soil water potential, the uh, sap flow in the stem, and then a branch of uh, stem water potential. Looking at that gradient, we can calculate hydraulic conductivity in situ and see how that changes. You know mm -hmm. that versus you know harvesting a stem and doing um, those dry down measurements I mentioned before in a lab setting, like doing that on a living tree or a shrub as the you know as the environment is changing, as the VPD or the soil moisture content might be changing. Um, I think that just gets us closer to, to like, yeah, closer to the mechanism of what the plants are actually doing right. instead of these, you know, extrapolating from snapshots. In extrapolating from snapshots, how then can we work with these more powerful modeling systems to work with the data that we have, or maybe kind of overcome, I don't want to say overcome the limitations of the sensors, because, you know, garbage in, garbage out when you're dealing with, with the data. But in your practice and in your experience, how have you been able to better model these complex processes within soil plant water interactions there? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I think about a lot like how the plant itself is responding. So the biology is really interesting to me. Um, and the but the biology is still, you know, there's still inputs, right? There's still the plants are sensing the external environment and then responding in a particular way. 
uh, depending on those conditions. And so one way I've been, um, or like taking this uh, snapshot approach, but like, like having these longer time series using the same kind of theoretical framework is be able to see, okay, well, how do these parameters themselves change over time? Mm -hmm. And can we expect a, especially something, you know, it's pretty obvious in a creosote because um, they're an evergreen species. And in June, they look just mostly dead. <laughs> they don't look all that, they keep their leaves. The leaves are brown at that point, um, but they're still living and they're still photosynthesizing. And so like, you, it, it's just natural to say, okay, well, Clearly, creosote at this point isn't behaving the same way or responding to the environment in the same way as it does in a uh, wetter, uh, more uh, more suitable time period. And so, yeah, and I think that matters a lot for these fluxes, right? Like, you know, creosotes are really dominant and across these deserts there are some places where it's pretty much creosote is the only major woody plant out there. Um, they might not be uh, highly productive. They're not as productive as other ecosystems, but that variability um, they account for a lot of the variability in the carbon cycle. And so, uh, yeah, the t and then if we, if we try to then put a snapshot parameter into a, into one of these biophysical models that, you know, have lots of equate, lots of systems of equations that explain our best, you know, that represent our best understanding of how photosynthesis, um, photosynthesis works, it's going to underestimate or maybe overestimate, but mostly underestimate what that, what's going to happen because you're like, it's a drought tolerant plant. It's parameters are really low. Uh -huh. That's not something I've alone have been thinking about, but just thinking, well, yeah, there's, you know, we think about models that having these inputs, outputs, and then these parameters, but what if the parameters themselves are dynamic? Do, does that mean right. we have to measure yeah. everything everywhere all at once to get <laughs> mm -hmm. them to work? And in which case, if we already measured everything everywhere all at once, then we wouldn't need these models now, mm -hmm. would we? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, thinking about how to incorporate the biology and the expected relationship to have that next layer of like, how do the parameters evolve? That's something that um, mm -hmm. that I've been thinking about. Right. We have been hearing about uh, your efforts uh, towards standardizing a national meteorological network that would include water potential measurements. And you've published and presented on this topic. Can you tell us a little bit more about this idea and, and the goals surrounding this potential network? Yeah, we'd be thrilled to do that. So um, the network is called SINET uh, because we often abbreviate uh, water potential with the Greek letter SI. Mm -hmm. So S-P-S-I-N-E-T, SINET. Um, and, you know, I think uh, just a, a little bit of background, it's, it's an idea that's been, in, in, you know, been kicking the, the idea around for a few years now, and it involves a, a much broader team of collaborators than, than just Jess and I. Um, but, you know, the original idea sort of was born out of two things. Um, uh, the first is sort of the recognition that in many fields of ecosystem ecology <clears throat> or, or, you know, ecophysiological research, we have developed these really accessible and open databases um, uh, whereby, you know, individual site PIs will collect data and then frequently voluntarily share the data um, to networks like Ameriflux or, or Fluxnet or, or SAPFluxnet um, in a way that they are they are accessible and open to the global community. Um, you know, just to take a step back, I uh, mentioned earlier in our discussion how I had started my PhD work on, on some Ameriflux towers in the deep forest, and I really didn't know much about the scientific enterprise at the time. But what I knew I had learned from, from um, my advisor and, and the lab group was just that we collect these measurements and we use them to answer questions we're interested in but we also give the data to the network. Mm -hmm. I said, well, that makes sense. 
Um, that must be how science is done. And it took me a long time to realize that that the Flux community, the Ameriflux community and, and, and sister networks across the world were really kind of on the leading edge of, of sort of this transition to, to open accessible data sharing. Um, and so I'm very lucky, I think, to have been sort of brought up in a community that places such a high value on that service. Um, you know, the other observation is when we when I think about plant hydraulics research, and ecophysiological research more generally, specifically when it concerns the function of things like plant stomates, I, I get the impression that we're a very theory rich, but data poor field, <laughs> which might be a bit of a su surprising statement to some. Um, so to, to say exactly what I mean, I, I think, you know, there's the, the functioning of plant stomates, which on the one hand is relatively quite straightforward. They are either relatively more open or relatively more closed. Um, is on the other hand so complex, <laughs> right? Especially when we want to connect those dynamics to what's happening with water flows through the stem and what's happening through the soils and, and what's happening in terms of uh, plant risk of, of, of mortality. Mm -hmm. And so we see these very beautiful papers being written all the time. They're largely modeling papers uh, that present different ways to model the dynamics of stomatal function. Um, which is a really noble goal. I mean, stomata are the pathway by which CO2 enters plants through photosynthesis, and thus the pathway by which most of the energy to support most life on Earth is created. Right? Yeah. So yeah. it's an important thing to study. We've got all these models, these very nice mathematical models, but it seems that we lack the data necessary to evaluate and cross-compare them. Because uh, particularly um, when we're thinking about water potential, um, but also I would argue some of the other traits that are really important pieces of the puzzle. We do not yet have these open accessible databases of the time series of water potential um, that are necessary to link environmental drivers to sort of ecosystem scale responses like photosynthesis and evapotranspiration. So we're hoping to fill that gap by creating a database um, that would aggregate uh, pre-existing and, and new observations of plant and soil water potential and we will happily accept uh, observations uh, made with uh, pressure chambers, so discrete plant water potential observations, as well as uh, you know increasingly frequent attempts to measure um, those data continuously. And um, so we are really excited to kick the project off. Um, we're going to pair it with a lot of um, uh, you know, in addition to building, let's say, a network of data, we're also excited about building a network of people. Mm -hmm. So there will be a yeah. lot of programming associated with the network, webinars, and um, early career training opportunities, um, and uh, a graduate distributed graduate seminar down the line, workshops, conference sessions, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been years in the works, and so we're really really excited to get it kicked off this year. <laughs> That's awesome. Along with that as well, I mean, you talked about, yeah, building this kind of community of researchers as well. Are you interested then in also improving or creating kind of best practices when it comes to observations and, and measurements within and interpretations of water potential data? Definitely. I think that's part, a large part of where the network of people comes in. I think, you know, people are trained in their labs and their advisors were taught by their advisors and there's these different lineages sometimes of how we do things mm -hmm. um even though it's you know especially with a pressure chamber it seems like it's a fairly standard thing but it turns out it's not and there was a really <laughs> nice paper um that came out recently by oh celia rodriguez dominguez on on this that reflected some of these experiments that they took oh does it matter if you you know do it this one particular way versus this other way um and so we want to collect some of that like how how do we like first of all even just like for to make a database at all like what are the standard 
data reporting format? Can we agree on that as a, mm-hmm. you know, as kind of a field? And we want as many people's um, thoughts and opinions on this as we can get. Um, I only know the way that I was trained, really. Mm-hmm. And so it's been eye-opening in some of these conversations we've had to build Cynet, um across the globe, really, uh, international team of researchers that uh, we have different takes on this. And I think it's also because it's very plant-specific. And that's a lot of the problem with some of these instruments that are plant instruments. Is like, what works for you on one species is just plainly not going to work for someone else. It depends on if there's resin or, if, mm-hmm. or you know, for pressure chamber methods, it's like, how big are your leaves? How mm-hmm. big are your petioles? Like, will it fit? Like, mm-hmm. I, you know. Um, all kinds of things. And are you trying to get a snapshot of lots of um, lots of different species, or are you focused on like the variation within a species or within even different branches of the same individual? And so, those are all things we're going to have to consider. Uh, we do want to develop some kind of data reporting formats um, and also best practices for the stem psychrometer. I think that's something that folks are interested in learning. But again, if they don't have a personal connection or like have this lineage of learning of Mm -hmm. of passing on the knowledge from someone who knows um, it can be really tricky. And I have had the opportunity to, to uh, work with some folks who have these instruments have had trouble with them and just, you know, there's something, you know, there's a lot we can do over the internet um, and with these webinars and we're going to have a lot of them, but the, the training um, one of them, one of which will be FizzFest really gives us an opportunity to, provide some hands-on. Some of these things, it's hard to describe or say what it is we're doing, but it's really nece- uh, really necessary to show rather than tell. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, those are, those are a lot of things I'm excited about. Right now, what is the timeline looking at for where it's off the ground and, and you know, you got the ball rolling and things are looking good? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so uh, it, the project hasn't officially started yet, um, but we hope to move quickly once it does. Um, you know, sort of our our early goals will be, um, yeah, supporting some of these early career um, training workshops. Uh, Jess mentioned FizzFest. We also have connections to Flux Course, um, which sort of emerged from the anti-covariance community, but we're excited to to bring water potential to Flux Course um, <laughs> at least a little bit next year. Um, we are very, you know, I hope we hope that within the, in the first few months of the project, we'll be opening the call. Uh, for submission of, of pressure chamber water potential measurements and, and associated uh, meteorological observations. Um, and, and in that regard, we, we will owe a pretty big debt to um, the folks that run SAPFLUXNET who have already begun to do some of this work uh, for, for the sites in their network um, mm-hmm. so we can sort of piggyback off of what they've learned from that experience. Um, the project I mentioned, collecting the water retention curves in the Miraflux sites will be um, an, an important, I think, early way to populate um, soil water potential information into the database. Um, but you can look for us to be having webinars and, and organizing conference sessions um, and, and beating on your door asking for your data. Um, but as we do, we recognize that these data are hard fought. Um, you know, uh, we, we discussed some of the difficulties associated with pre-dawn measurements and working in tall forests already. Um, so we're also thinking through the right incentives um, to motivate people to want to share their data with the network and also ways to properly uh, reward and attribute what are frequently the early career scientists that, that collected the data. Mm-hmm. Oh, and just just be on the lookout. We uh, One of the first things we're going to do is put out a call for uh, membership on our working groups. And so... Um, and one of the first working groups will be the data working group where we're going to, yeah, mm-hmm. seek people's uh, input on these data reporting formats and also, and yeah, survey them about how, what would they be incentivized by, uh, what would work for them, 
what would incentivize them to share their data and mm-hmm. and make it easier or you know it's always that, it's a little bit of a leap to to like take a data from a format that you're used to working with to make it a format that someone else can also find it useful right but right. what would what would make that process a bit more streamlined yeah what do you see as the the future of of this research either within your your own particular specialty or within this this idea of a of a network of interconnected uh, researchers who are looking at ecophysiology or soil or, or plant water potentials? Yeah, I can take a first stab at that. You know, we already mentioned sort of the challenge of, of getting these processes right in models. And so I, I'm hopeful that the database that we'll build um, can enable progress on that front where, where it's currently been hindered by just the lack of, of systematic, representative, open data, you know, from, from a wide range of sites. Another really, I think, exciting frontier um, concerns uh, our ability to measure really important features of not only canopy water use, but also canopy water content remotely. Um, so we have, uh, it's just amazing to me how rapidly the satellite platforms are developing. We have EcoStress in, in orbit on the on the space station that can mm-hmm. uh, provide a proxy of ET at the scale of individual farm fields, which is really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a growing interest in the use of vegetation optical depth measurements, or VOD, as a proxy for, for water content. And here I really want to credit um, Alex Konings, uh, who's at Stanford and, and um, is, is part of Cynet uh, for kind of really helping to to develop those approaches and and and, and spread them throughout the community. Um, and so, I, what's really exciting is I think the opportunity to pair a much more representative data set of ground observations of, of water potential, um, and and ideally, oftentimes co-located uh, with with uh, measurements of the fluxes themselves, whether mm-hmm. it's from flux towers or, or softflux. Um, as, as ground truthing and, and reality check data on what we're seeing uh, from space, because mm-hmm. that could really open the door to, to new ways to characterize um, not only plant water stress or, or, or vegetation water stress or drought stress, but also, I mean, thinking about, you know, we, we, you don't have to connect too many dots to see that this presents the possibility for whole new ways to conceive water retention curves, mm-hmm. right? the ecosystem water retention curve, or to, to think about how to understand the relationships between water content and water potential at really core yeah. scales. So yeah. um, really excited to see, uh, you know, where, how far we can get in that direction over the coming years. Right. Jessica, your thoughts on the future in this regard? <laughs> yeah, well, Kim co- covered it very nicely. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things we don't even know that it could, it could be, do, uh, it could be useful for um, and as validation data sets for these newer data, newer data platforms. Um, but I, you know, I think it can also be really useful for kind of really standard questions in plant ecophysiology. You know, this assumption that pre-dawn water potential is a proxy for the soil water potential um, in the root zone that Kim mentioned earlier, um, you know, that's not always going to be the case. And uh, there's there's individual papers that have gone out there and done fine scale measurements to, to show that that's not always the case, but we don't have a good idea across the board, like under what conditions can we does this assumption hold or species does this assumption hold and under what conditions do we have to you know revisit this assumption and so uh, you know the power of the database of people working at different in different places with different um, different species is it'll really allow us to I think have I, I anticipate lots of synthesis coming out of this including some really standard kind of you know I, I was also thinking too like 
early on driven like my, my questions maybe don't seem very sophisticated because some of the things are literally like how does water potential affected by soil moisture content and BPD like the dryness of the atmosphere mm. and it's like shouldn't we know that already like that's a pretty <laughs> state that's a plant environment interaction question that people have been asking and we have had the tools to answer for a long time but mm-hmm. to answer those questions more systematically in a synthetic way that accounts for what we know are different about different species and environments that's been really hard to do because of the paucity of data. Well, thank you both for taking your time. I just wanted to ask if there's any place that our listeners can go if they want to learn more about your various research projects. Yeah, um, I, we're, we're a little too early to, to throw out a sign-up web address or email address, but um, I, I, folks are welcome to email me. Um, uh, it's uh, uh, fairly Google-able name, <laughs> so not too hard to find. Um, so feel free to find me. I work at Indiana University and shoot me an email. All right. <laughs> and Jessica? The same. Um, you can find me, jessicaguo.github.io. Uh, Stay safe, and we'll see you next time on We Measure the World. <laughs>